You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Well, welcome this morning. It's a pleasure to speak to you today. We're going to continue our series in the Minor Prophets. You know, when we hear that term minor, I want to remind you what, you know, as Ted has reminded us, that we think of non, you know, someone that's not very important. But minor doesn't mean that. It just means that they're not as extensive in their, in their prophetic literature like the major prophets, you know, like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel even. But this morning we're going to look at Jonah 1 through 4. It's really a story uh, that's clothed in, in grace and mercy. Now, I think that uh, a lot of times when people think about Jonah, they think of uh, a great incident where he was swallowed by the great fish. Now, there was a second-grade little girl who shared with her second-grade teacher her longing to see one Jonah one day, to see Jonah one day. It went kind of like this. I can't wait till I get to heaven. I want to talk to Jonah and find out what it was like being inside the belly of that great big fish for three days and three nights. Her teacher scolded her and said, Sweetie, that's impossible. Fish can't swallow a human being. That's the stuff of fairy tales and make-believe. The little girl stopped for a minute. She goes, well, I'm just going to wait and talk to Jonah when I get to heaven myself. And, the, you know, the teacher once again had a sarcastic comment. She goes, well, what if Jonah's in hell? This little girl was sharp. She thought for a minute. She goes, I guess that means you'll have to ask him. Now, you know, the attitude of that uh, little girl is the attitude of many higher critical scholars who look at the book of Jonah and the, the incident with him being swallowed by the great fish, and they say, well, miracles can't happen today in, in the natural realm. God can't, God can't intervene. It, it might be important for us in that there's some spiritual truth there, but it's, it's not really a literal type event. Some say it's an allegory, meaning... Their spiritual meaning, but it's not history. Others say, no, it's more like a parable. There's a teaching story. There's a moral to the story. Kind of like in the New Testament stories, you know, in parables of the prodigal son in the, in the Good Samaritan. Contrary to that, however, our Lord said in both Matthew 12, 38 through 41, in Luke 11, 29 through 33, that the event of Jonah being swallowed by the great fish and all the attending events of the book, including the preaching of the message of repentance to the Ninevites, was literal history. It was a literal historical narrative. In fact, our Lord speaks about Jonah more often than any of the prophets, major or minor. And we're going to look at one of those verses in Matthew 12, verses 38 through 41. You might remember it as the sign of Jonah. Then some of the Pharisees... In, in the teachers of the law, said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the well, in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. 
Folks, this is what we call biblical typology. What happened in the Old Testament with Jonah is a picture of the death, resurrection, death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. For just as Jonah was in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights, there was even a greater event that looked forward to Christ being his death, his burial, and resurrection. It's biblical typology. Now, there's some important facts here about Jonah that we don't know a whole lot about Jonah, but the Bible does tell us some things. We know from 2 Kings 14, 25, that uh, Jonah was the son of a person by the name of Amittai, and that he was from a place called Gath-Hefer. Probably never heard of that. (laughs) It's uh, somewhere near Galilee in the region of Nazareth. The book also reveals that... uh, Jonah reveals that he was a prophet, and we think the book was written sometime between 793 and 753 B.C. Now, the name Jonah actually means dove. In Old Testament times, dove was a symbol of of the nation of Israel. We know that in the New Testament, it was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. There's something different about Jonah than all the other prophetic books. All the other prophetic books, including the major and minor prophets, are prophetic oracles of judgment against other nations. That's the story. But the book of Jonah, the story itself is the message. Now, the theme of the book is this. God is compassionate for all men, and there's sin and grace. And as Chris alluded to, man runs from God because of sin, but God is pursuing us with grace and mercy. It's a short story. You can actually read the book of Jonah in probably 10 or 15 minutes. It's very interesting. Jonah 1 through 3, we're going to see that Jonah receives a commission from God and he makes a decision to run from it. Now, we're going to look at Jonah verses 1, 1 through 3, where that is. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish, He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarsus to flee from the Lord. You know, a question I have here is uh, how how can you run from an all-seeing, all-powerful, all-knowing God? I think the psalmist had it right in uh, Psalms 139, that famous passage about how we were created in our mother's womb. And he said, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Now, we have a map, I believe, hopefully I'm going to, Jonah uh, ran about as far as far away as you can from God. He went from as far east, which is the place he was commanded to go, you know, to Nineveh, to a place called Tarshish, which is in present-day Spain, which uh, basically is about as far away as you could get in the ancient world at that time. Now, there's a saying that uh, we're not really sure where it came from. It's, you can run, but you can't hide. Now, we're not really sure where that came from. We think it might have come from, there was a a 
boxer from a former generation. Many of you probably don't know, but his name was Joe Lewis, and he made a, a statement, man, about one of his opponents in the ring. He can run, but he can't hide. Sounds more like Muhammad Ali to me. <laughs> but today in the criminal you know, I work in the, in the criminal justice system uh, as a probation officer that's a specialized counselor with kids with drugs and alcohol, and we hear kids say stuff like, man, I'm tired of this probation. Leave me alone. Let me just smoke my marijuana. We're going to legalize it anyway. That's what they say. Oh, man, I'm tired of this uh, ankle monitor I'm wearing around my ankle. I'm going to cut that sucker off, and I'm going to run away. And we say, yeah, you can go ahead and do that. You can run, but you can't hide because what happens, that initiates a warrant for their arrest, and they will eventually be found. Now, when we think of that slogan, you can run, but you can't hide, we think of something legal like that, don't we? Something kind of like punitive. But it's ironic that... People like Jonah are running from God, and yet God is really in pursuit of them and us to provide grace and mercy and forgiveness. Now, what are some reasons that people would run from God? Well, I think one of the first ones is rebellion. We look in the Scripture, you know, we, we can see this plainly in Romans 8, 5 through 7. I'll apply this to Jonah in a moment. Those who live according to the flesh have their mindset on the flesh, flesh's desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mindset on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. There's a natural bent in in us, outside of Christ, to want to do our own thing, to want to leave God behind. It's like my way or the highway, to resist God. I think in John chapter 3, verses 19, 21, there's some additional information in the context of for God to love the world, that passage there. John tells us, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. There's a tendency to run from God because sometimes that light is so bright, as you alluded to this morning. I caught that and I said, like, man, that light is so bright, I don't want to. I don't want to come before God. It exposes the sin, and it's easier to stay back in the darkness than it is to come before the light, even if there's a little bit of conviction there. That applies especially to unbelievers. But what about someone who knows God, like supposedly Jonah or someone today who's, who has the Holy Spirit and is a Christian, and they rebel? Well, you know, there is a tendency in, inside of us to rebel, but there's also this... We've received a new heart. I don't believe it's on the screen, but in uh, Ezekiel 11, it teaches that we have received a new heart, and that new heart gives us new desires. It gives us a new in inclination to want to do the, and obey the things of God. But there's, in each of us, there's, there's issues, there's pockets of resistance, if you will, that are hostile toward God that we're like, I'm not, I don't know if I'm ready to give that up yet. 
I don't know if I can. I don't want to submit to lordship in that. It's kind of like Pastor Ted shared in 2 Corinthians about this thing called sanctification. It's a process of becoming more like God, more like Christ. But it's a long, it's, it's a long process, and we really won't be happy until we really submit all those pockets of resistance unto him. And we're not going to be perfect, mind you. But God desires all of us to follow him in lordship. Now, there's another issue, I think, and I, I think this might be out of order a little bit in your uh, bulletin. I noticed this, this, the third one says fear, but this is actually the first the line right after rebellion. You put in fear. Another reason is fear. You think Jonah might have had a reason to fear, and I want you to think about this. One of the reasons he ran was because the Ninevites at that time were developing into the arch enemies of Israel. Boy, were they, were they mean dudes. I mean, they did stuff like buried people up to their neck and then put a cork in their tongue so they couldn't do like this for their thirst. They were noted as taking the, the women of, of, their, of the people they captive who were pregnant and splitting them wide open. And Jonah's like, you know what? I don't know if I want to go there or not. Would you be a little fearful? What are they going to do to me? Are they going to... Are they going to Put me up to here and put a cork in my tongue. Who knows? So I think fear, fear might be a little, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Sometimes to, when you really don't know what's going to happen, even in our lives, our lives might be not, it may not be as intense a situation as Jonah's, but isn't it true that sometimes it's a little fearful just to step out there and let go and let God and not fear when we're wondering how to pay the bills? When we're wondering, hey, how are we going to make it? We've been threatened that maybe our job's going to run out. What are we going to do? But the Scripture gives us some basic admonitions to, to not fear. In fact, do not fear occurs over 200 times in the Scriptures. There's a reason for that. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Romans 8, 15. Sorry, I think I got out of track there a little bit. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought, you, brought about your adoption to sonship. We haven't received a spirit of fear, but a spirit of sonship. Furthermore, 1 John four eighteen says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Let us not fear today. Let us not rebel. And then there's another reason I think people run from God, and another reason Jonah ran is this this issue of pride. Augustine said in the 4th century that pride is the love of one's own excellence. I'm so great. You had to be careful about that one because we can exalt ourselves to the point where it's fine to have a little bit of pride in our accomplishments and the things that we do, you know, self-esteem that we, that we talk about today. That's fine. But if it goes, it, there's a point to where it goes to the point where it becomes conceited, feeling like, oh, I'm better than you or I'm like, you know, hey, I'm, I'm superior or whatever. I got so much pride. Didn't Jonah feel that way? Jonah, what, one of the reasons Jonah didn't want to go was because 
they weren't the covenant people. They weren't part. They, by that, by this time, there had already developed a prejudice against anyone that was a non-Jew. Anyone that wasn't part of the seed of Abraham was already there. He was like, "Oh, those people. They're not. They're not. They're not my people. They're. They're not part of my group. And besides, they're bad people anyway." I don't want, you know, I'm not going to go down. And I thought to myself as I was preparing for this, what if the Lord, what if he felt that way about us? What if he had said, you know what? I'm not going down to those dirty sinners down there. Man, I'm going to stay in my exalted state of heaven. I'm not going to go down there where they are. Just let them die and go to hell. What if he, what if he, you know, it's not the attitude of God. I, I want to commend a book to you called, Mere Christianity. It's an older book by C.S. Lewis, but he makes a comment there. He says, love is the complete anti-God state of mind. It's just the opposite of what God is. God is not pride. He proved that in coming down and becoming one of us in the incarnation and taking our place on the cross. Well, you know the story about what happened after this. Jonah's on the ship, okay, and he runs. He runs from God. And uh, there's this great storm, and the sailors are like, what's up? What's going on? This, this draw lots. And that's what they did in the ancient world to determine who was guilty. And the lot fell on Jonah. They came to, he was actually sleeping in the depths. <laughs> Just like the psalmist said, can I go to the depths? He was sleeping in the, in the bottom of the ship, snoring. And they come, hey, dude, what's Hey, the lot fell on you. What's up? Jonah realized, you know Hey, my God is the God of uh, the land and the sea, and this is my fault. Throw me overboard. He knew he was running. Now, they tried to go to shore. They couldn't do it, so they reluctantly picked him up and threw him overboard. And then that controversial event happened. They threw him into the sea. Jonah 1.17 says, Then God appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. It vomit, excuse me, God appointed a great fish, and he was in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights. Now, again, many say this couldn't have happened. There's actually some historical uh, testimony and evidence of people that have been swallowed by sperm whales. Sperm whales inhabit the Mediterranean, and it had a gullet large enough to swallow a human being. Now, we don't know if it was a sperm whale or not. I mean, but we know that it was something God appointed it. You know, for some reason, some folks have a problem with this. I know even some Christians say, I don't believe that story. God couldn't have. I said, well, do you believe in the resurrection? Well, yeah. My counterpoint is, well, couldn't a God who resurrects, could he not also appoint a great fish to swallow a human being? Yes, he could. This was a literal event. Now, Psalms chapter 2 is a psalm of prayer and repentance. And it highlights the the fourth reason why Jonah and why people run from God, and that's because of guilt and shame. There he is inside the great fish. Don't don't you think he was uh, feeling some guilt maybe? I mean, it's obvious this is a miracle. God intervened, and there he is. And there's a psalm and prayer here of his of an act of repentance. You know, repentance is like a godly sorrow, as Ted shared with us and taught us in the book of Corinthians. It's 
It's not just being sorry you got caught. It's a deep sorrow, saying, Lord, I'm sorry. I want to turn my life. It's a change of mind, a change of direction, a change of purpose. We're going against God, fleeing toward Tarshish, and now you're going to go the opposite direction, go toward God. Felt that guilt and shame there. Now, You know, I bring this up because it's a contemporary issue today, and several years ago we, uh, we did a series on porn, and uh, one of the things that we've discovered and stats show now is that more and more women are getting addicted to porn. 20% of women who get online are viewing pornography. Now, we, we primarily see that as, as, a, as a man's issue because of the eyes, right? And it is primarily a man's issue, I think. But more and more people are getting are getting caught up in that. And the thing about about it is that it creates uh, guilt and shame. And, and the longer a person is involved in that and, and, and looks on that, the, the, and the more secretive that sin becomes, the more shrink back. Now, I, I know this is a difficult subject, and I'm not going to dwell on this, but I just want to say if that happens to be an issue with you, we, can, we can't assume that it, this issue is not part of church. It's, media affects everybody. I want to share with you, though, that if you have that issue, there's, a, there's support here through us. Talk to us. We want to pray with you. There's online, online sources. I encourage you to look at our website for that. And uh, our Lord is ready to receive you. Hebrews 4, 6, 16 says, Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of our need. And I would say if we go so far as to, particularly men who say, I don't have any problem with this issue at all, basically what we're saying is that we're stronger than Samson, more godly than David, and wiser than Solomon. All three of those men had problems with that. And I'm not not being accusatory this morning. I'm just saying, let, let the Lord pierce your heart if that's an issue. God's available for forgiveness and for new life. Now, now here in the, I think this issue of guilt and shame, I think it's interesting how Jonah is going west to get run from God where he was supposed to be east. It's interesting, I don't believe this is on the slide either here, but Psalms 103.12 says, He's removed our transgressions and our sins as far as the east is from the west. East goes that away, west goes that away, and never two shall meet again. We can come boldly to him before the throne of grace. Now, Jonah 2 7 9. Jonah says, my life was ebbing away. I remember you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah into dry land. Jonah had been running from God. 
turns to God. Chapter 3, we're going to see that Jonah begins running with God. In the, in Jonah 3, 1 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. In that little verse right there, boy, there's, there's a lot of meat right there. Some say that the God of the Old Testament is primarily just a God of, of judgment. You know, He's like waiting for us to mess up, like he's got a lightning bolt. As soon as we mess up, it's, me, me, I got you. No. If God, was, if God was primarily like that, wouldn't he tell Jonah, hey, you messed up, baby. I'm going to get somebody else. I got somebody else in line. You, you go back to, to Gaff Heifer, fella. I got somebody else. No, God uses broken people. He uses broken people to accomplish his plans. He's the God of the second chance. He's a God of the second chance. And then Jonah went and he's responded to God's grace and he went to the people. You know, there's a a spiritual cycle that has been characteristic of the people of God, I think, from the, almost from the very beginning. And it's this. Man has fellowship with God. I don't see the slide, but God, God man has fellowship with God. Man runs from God. What happens? Maybe some, it's an event of some kind. Perhaps, perhaps it's uh, the death of a spouse. Perhaps it's uh, losing a job whatever, maybe not as traumatic as what happened to Jonah here, but uh, something happens. You know, at that point, it's a turning point. People either turn to God in in his grace and mercy and say, Lord, I'm I'm just going to trust you and follow your will through this. I know you're going to get me through it. Or they become bitter people and, and and run further away from God. Man, that's the time to embrace God. That's the time to embrace him. And then... What God does, he brings discipline into our life at that time, just like a good father, a good loving father would. What? To set us straight, to get us going on the right path. We need to be aware of that. God uses events of our lives like that to bring us closer to him. And then there's repentance, as we've seen here with Jonah, a a godly sorrow, and then once again back in fellowship with God. I think God uses that cycle in all of our lives to grow us and to mature us into the people that he would have us to be. Now, also with this issue of guilt and shame, Genesis 3.9 there says, uh, you might remember the story in the Garden of Eden at the fall. There it says, uh, where art thou? Where are you? That's in the King James, it says, where art thou? That, that's reminiscent of the movie with George Clooney, you know. Where art thou? God knew where they were. God knew where they were. God knows where we are, but God needs to hear from us. He needs to hear a confession. And they confessed, but you know, God banished them from the Garden of Eden. And we're going to see in a moment that even, even that is, uh, was an act of grace in and of itself. It was, it was judgment tempered with grace. God is a God that prefers grace over mercy. There's, there's many examples in the Bible. One ex- from the very beginning, I want you to think about this. Even in the Garden of Eden, 
Adam and Eve sinned, you know, and they slain the animals and they clothed themselves in their, in their nakedness, which was really a man's attempt to try to, to establish his own uh, salvation. But it took the blood of Christ to finally do that. But, and God says, where are you? And uh, they, they hide from God. God incurs his judgment upon them. And, he can't, and we see in Genesis 3.22 a passage that's that's really uh, also a grace passage. It says there that in the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil, because they ate of that tree and their eyes were open. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now think about this with me. If God had allowed Adam and Eve in their sinful state and condition to eat that of the tree of life, which is eternal life, they and we would have been forever condemned in our sin. We would have lived forever without any possibility of redemption or salvation. Think about that. And so in a real sense, death was the final enemy, but also in a sense, death is a blessing because when man rebelled and was cast out of the garden, now man has an opportunity to turn to God in this life, not, not live forever in, sin, in, their, in their sin, hopeless, but in this life accept God and then die and go to heaven. That's grace and mercy. How about the, what was something that I, I notice a lot of people, I, sometimes I get into talks with people about the Old Testament and one of the pet peeves of many is, what about uh, the, them going in and killing all those, Canaan, all those Canaanites, those men, women, and children? I want you to think about something about that. It was 400 years from the time God gave the promise to Abram to inherit the land until the land was actually occupied. That's 400 years of grace and mercy. Because in each person, the Bible teaches there's what we call the light of creation. The fool says in his heart there's no God. We can see God in the creation, in the created order. There's also the light of conscience. There's, there's an awareness of, of rightness and wrongness inside of people. It's not enough to bring them into salvation, but it, there's, there's rightness and, and wrongness concept in the mind of man. They had 400 years, and they... We, they had many warnings. They saw what, how the people of God were advancing into the other countries, into the other places, but they didn't. And God's judgment finally fell upon the Canaanites. You see, because God is one who prefers grace and mercy over judgment. So Jonah begins to run with God now. Now that concept of run, uh, by the time the New Testament came along, took on the concept of race from the Olympic Games. In Rome. Now the uh, the whole idea here is it's getting involved in God's program and saying, "Hey, I want God to use me, and I want to do what God says, and I want to I want to establish God's God's purpose in my life. I'm going to run with God now." So Jonah, what he did, he went to the city. He says, "Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it." The message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. And we think in Nineveh could have held as many as 120 to 175,000 people. Jonah began going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, that number 40 is really significant in Scripture. It's the number of testing and probation. I don't believe we had that. Now, there's there are, uh, the, the number 40, I'm just going to say one 
example of it because of time. You're probably most familiar with Matthew 4 where Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. And he passed, praise God. He passed the test. It's a time of probation, time of testing. And the Ninevites had 40 days to repent. Well, what happened? Well, they did. Uh, Jonah 3.10 says that when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. You see, he's a God of mercy. He saw the evil in that city. And he's a God of grace and mercy. And he brought a watchman in the form of Jonah to come and tell them to turn from their, to turn from their ways. And there was this great turning the people put on sackcloth and there was a decree by the king to fast and not even drink water for a period of time. They even put sackcloth on their animals. God recognized that. Repentance. But you know, repentance can be shallow. We know that within a little over a generation after that, God brought the, the prophet Nahum to announce the judgment of God upon Nineveh because once again, they went back to, into their wickedness, into their barbarism, into the torture, all the things we talked about before. But God reckon, does recognize repentance when it happens. There's, a, there's a, a teaching here that I don't want us to miss, and that's that our sins and failures do not change God's power and promises. He can forgive sin. He can forgive your sin. He can even forgive the sin of a bloodthirsty Ninevite. He forgive their sin. Now, you would think Jonah might be a little excited about this. Might be, uh, you know, hey, you know, God's used me in a, in a powerful way uh, to reach these people. They, they're turning around. But no, no. Jonah's like, I'm angry. He said, I knew that you were that way. God, that's why I left for Tarsus in the first place. Because I knew that you were, you were a... a a loving God, and, and you, you were kind, and you would relent from your, from your de- destruction if people turned around. I knew. I'm mad. Now, why would he be mad? He goes east to a high area to watch things unfold, and God provided a gourd plant for him, and uh, there's an object lesson in all this, and then he provided a a worm to eat that plant, okay? He was comfortable there for a while, but then in the, in the morning and to the afternoon, there was a scorching east wind and there was sun and he, he grew faint and, and uh, boy, he was, he was comfortable for a while. Now he's like, I want to die, I want to die. The Lord's like, do you have a right to be angry? You know, it's very interesting is that uh, in this passage here is that it's the only passage in the Bible where that ends with a question. He says, And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? Should I not be concerned about that great city? That's the end of Jonah. That's, should I not be concerned? Is there an object lesson here perhaps for us? Sometimes is it easier for us to be concerned more about our own comfort? And about other people, the people that are lost, people that are in need of God. 
you know, by this time I had said uh, there was an intense prejudice against anyone who was a non-Jew and not part of the seed of Abraham. And this whole idea kind of uh, got worse and worse up until the time of Christ. Uh, a Jew was quoted as saying, Oh, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile or a woman. Then that lets you know what, what, they, what they thought of Gentiles and women, doesn't it? Dirty dogs. And this created kind of like a, uh, a, an idea of separatism and holier-than-thou-ism. We're not going to associate with you. And those people are our enemies. You know, our Lord really uh, radicalized this whole concept in Matthew. The Jews heard, uh, in fact, I'm going to go ahead and read Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. See, when they heard, to them, love, with that commandment, love thy neighbor meant, hey, I'm going to love my homeboy. I love my, my fellow Jew over here. No, that's not, no. It's, but I say to you, tell you, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of the Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you only greet your brothers, what good are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And, you know, Jesus led the way for us because we were hostile toward him. We were enemies of God and enemies of his gospel. And yet Romans 5, 8, that familiar passage says, but God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, years ago I worked in a, in a jail-type ministry. It was a, there in the juvenile detention center. And I worked with a, a person, by the, a Hispanic fellow by the name of Caesar. And Caesar just had a glow of love about him when he spoke. He drew people to him. And I asked Caesar one day, I said, Caesar, man, what happened in your life? He said, I want to tell you what happened. He said, he said I was in the Dallas County Jail. You know, I, I can't sanitize this because this is the way he said it. He said, I was literally laying in my alcoholic vomit. And he said, this... These two black men reached down and picked me up and said, man, you don't have to live this way anymore. And they cleaned me up and they told me about Christ. He said, I can't explain it to you. He said, but when those two black men did that for me, it changed my life forever. That's the power of loving our enemy. Now, maybe we can't totally relate to that story if, if we don't work with those type of folks or in that type of environment. But, you know, this concept of enemy, I think, is broader than just that. There's active enemy like that, but there's passive enemy, a passive enemy. That's someone that, that's uh, different than us, you know, like the Jew and the Gentile. Someone, that, someone that's different, maybe, maybe a different race, maybe a different uh, a style of communication or whatever. And I think sometimes that even happens in the body of Christ. We make assumptions about one another. and We don't try to communicate and link up, and, and we never really get to know one another. But it, it, it could be someone that's disenfranchised. It could be from the other side of the tracks, like, like, like a prostitute. Tony Campolo tells the story of him going into a diner late one night 
in the wee hours of the morning, and there were some prostitutes there, and they were talking about their friend whose birthday was the next day. And he befriended them, and he, he said, why don't we uh, get a cake for her? And they got a cake, and she came in the next night, and she saw the birthday cake, and she started bawling. And she goes, man, nobody's ever. I've never had a birthday party before. And members of his church had come to help out and serve and so forth. And the, and the, the guy from the diner that owned the place said, man, said, uh, what? What's up with this? What kind of church would do this? He said, Kampala said, the, ty- the kind of church that would hold a party for a prostitute at 3 a.m. in the morning. I thought to myself, man, I pray that we're that kind of church that loves people that much. Are we that kind of church? Now, you know, this, this story to me is a, is a grand story. It's a preview of the Great Commission. And I want to challenge us this morning to run with God, to not go, well, you know, stay in the background, but, but fulfill God's will for your life. Uh, God has a purpose and a mission for you. Don't just uh, back off and stay in the background Run with God. Pursue God. Obey Him. He can use you. You say, well, I'm too broken. He can use His broken people. Now, some application here. We're nearly done. And I just want to go over three of these things here. The applications are that God's plan on earth is to establish a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Okay, not just, not just the Jews, but everyone to come to Christ. And God, as we've alluded to, God uses broken people to accomplish his plans. James 4, 6 says that he gives grace. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And most of all, God prefers grace and mercy over judgment. Where are you today in that spiritual cycle? Where are you today? Are you running from God Perhaps something's happened in your life and you're, you're in rebellion. Man, it's time to embrace God. Do you feel like that you're on a ship toward Tarsus? Are you going the opposite direction from where God, where you know God wants you to go? Man, it's not too late for you to turn it around. God, God wants to restore you. God wants to establish that, that sweet joy of salvation again. Even as, the, even as David said, in, the, in Psalm 51, how sweet it was to renew that relationship. God prefers grace and mercy over judgment. Don't run from Him today. Run for Him. Run toward Him. His arms are open for you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank You so much that You are God of grace and mercy that you prefer grace and mercy over judgment. Oh, God, thank you for your cross. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for providing, for, for providing salvation that we might live. Oh, Lord, I thank you. I pray that you would touch hearts today and people won't run from you but would embrace you and your love. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Living with Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.